Well, I think it's uh, still relevant and well-known enough that I can title my sermon, The Fellowship of the Cross, and what most people will think of is J.R.R. Tolkien's fantasy epic, The Lord of the Rings. Even though the movies were made 20 years ago, and the book itself was written, I don't know how many decades ago, uh, the whole story and the films are so popular that it's unlikely that that story is going to be forgotten anytime soon. Uh, And of course, uh, the first volume in the movie have the title, The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, So kids, when you're a bit older, trust me, that is a good story to get into, all right? Worth, worth getting into. Now, aside from uh, hopefully making the point of this passage memorable, I've chosen this title because I want you to think about the key word in it, which is the word fellowship. What do you think of when you think of the word fellowship? If you uh, liked Lord of the Rings, and managed to get through the first 500 pages of description. It's not really that many pages, but it feels like that. And we're rewarded rewarded with an actual story. Then you might think of Frodo and Samwise, Gamgee and Aragorn, and that motley crew that got together, and they became known as the Fellowship of the Ring. This Fellowship of the Ring was a group who banded together and faced adversity And they had one another's backs, and they were willing to give their lives for one another and for the cause of destroying the ring. If you've been around churches for a while, you might instead think of what we sometimes call fellowship, which is basically a Christianese word meaning hanging out together, or perhaps table fellowship, which is also a Christianese word for hanging out together over a meal. Now, of course, it's totally fine to use you know, the word fellowship in that way, but the thing that we need to be careful uh, of, and when it comes to language, and especially when it comes to interpreting and understanding the Bible, is that we don't let definitions of words bleed into one another where they shouldn't. I say that because the most important word in our passage this morning is one that is often translated as fellowship. And if we define fellowship as simply hanging out, the way that it's often used, then we'll miss significantly what God is saying to us in this passage. Sorry, can you just sort that out for me? Again, if you've been around in church a little while, then uh, you may have heard it said that the Greek word for fellowship is kunania, uh, or koinonia, as some people might pronounce it. And actually, this can mean fellowship, uh, and that's exactly how Paul uses it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, as you can see. It's translated as fellowship. It's the same Greek word uh, here in the ESV. But even here, you can see that it means something far more than simply just spending time together, simply hanging out. 
And in our passage this morning, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that same Greek word has been translated as participation. That is, it's not just that we have a deep bond and a connection with somebody, it's that you are engaging in a shared activity with a common purpose and a common goal. And so in that sense, the definition of the fellowship of the cross is far more like our friends from Middle Earth. And so my hope this morning is that as we consider what it means to be in fellowship with Christ and in fellowship with one another, that we would be asking ourselves the question, as I mentioned before, whose fellowship are you in? Or which team are you on? Well, as we uh, explore this passage with our Bibles open and our hearts and our minds open, let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, as we have just sung, we ask that you would prepare our hearts as we hear your word so that we may respond in faith to you and all that you are saying to us by your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So point number one, the fellowship of the cup. Now, as I said last week, chapter 10 is the end of a long argument which began in chapter 8. Paul has been saying uh, all along to the Corinthians that out of love for their brothers and sisters, they need to lay down their rights, whether real ones or self-justifying false ones, out of love for their brothers and sisters. He also tells them this because, as we saw last week, he is warning the Corinthians about the very serious consequences of idolatry. And that's exactly where we pick him up here in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Therefore, he says, in light of everything I've said, in light of the types and the examples that I've given you from our fathers, the Israelites, how they failed to heed God's warnings and, that God, um, and the warnings that God gave them whenever they reverted back to worshipping idols, in light of those examples that I have given you, brothers and sisters, Paul says, my beloved, flee from idolatry. We talked last week about how the modern application of idolatry for us today is essentially the same as it was for the Israelites, even though our idols might not be so obvious. You, you might not have a golden calf in your living room that you bow down to, but you're certainly likely to be trusting in or finding hope in or seeing as of greatest importance in your life something that you have made with your own hands or made with your own mind, something other than God. Such a thing, even though you might not be able to touch it or smell it or taste it, is still idolatry. And God is telling us, as Paul did to the Corinthians, beloved, flee from idolatry. Beloved isn't really a term we use much these days, uh, unless we want to be uh, quirky or funny with our spouses or others. I don't know, maybe some people do use it with others. But Paul's use of it here signals his great love for the Corinthians. That's what he's saying when he says, my beloved. 
And it's amazing because here is a church that has in many ways rejected Paul and his teaching and decided that they, they think that they know better than him. And yet, like a loving father, Paul continues to love them, continues to plead with them. His motivation in writing this letter, in saying the things that he does, is not to show his superiority, it's not to show his authority, but it is because he loves them and he wants to see them kept from being destroyed. I said it last week and I'll say it again. Do you love your brothers and sisters, both in our church and those that you know who profess to be Christians? Do you love them enough to warn them of idolatry in their lives? Scott asked me last week what was behind my tears as I preached. He asks me this often because he finds crying preachers annoying. Well, other than perhaps the uh, Holy Spirit and the fact that I'm getting old and I can't seem to control my emotions anymore, certainly one thing that was happening as I was preaching was that it was like the Lord enlarged my heart and my love for all of you as I was declaring these truths to you. He reminded me that it is to you that I bear the same responsibility that Paul did to the Corinthians. This is something that I'm learning more and more each day that God continues to do as a work in me and in my own heart and in a way that he continues to grow me in love for you and for others. Do you feel the same? Is that love for your brothers and sisters, those that you know who profess to love Christ, your friends and your family, is that love for them growing? And is it growing enough to warn them to flee from the idols in their lives? Yes, we need to do it winsomely. We don't want to just try and barge into their lives uninvited. But is there an impulse in your heart? Is there a love from within that compels you to look for that opportunity, to take it when it's there, to pray that the Lord would provide it. Ask the Lord to enlarge your heart and your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. In this verse, we see that Paul has been driving towards this throughout chapters 8 to 10. Therefore, he says, my beloved, flee from idolatry. As I mentioned last week, this is the only other time in this letter, aside from chapter 6, where Paul gives the command to flee. This is the only time we see that in this letter. And we saw then that Paul wasn't mucking around when he said flee from sexual immorality, and that is certainly still the case here. Paul's love for the Corinthians causes him to give them this imperative, this direction, flee from idolatry. It is the climax of his argument. In chapter 8, we saw Paul tell the Corinthians that you know, they must not justify their own preferences 
to go to the temples thinking that they're more spiritual than others. He's saying that is idolatry. In chapter 9, we saw Paul show how the Christian life is one where Christians lay down their God-given rights for, their, for, for the sake of others, that they will not be mastered by anything else other than God and what He calls us to, even when it means giving up things that we're allowed to have. And of course, as I mentioned before, we saw last week how the consequences of idolatry are severe. And that to resist those warnings, as Israel did, results in eternal destruction in hell. Paul has wisely and pastorally built his case so that the Corinthians would realize that idolatry is deadly and they must flee from it. And he's done so in the hope that they will pay attention and think carefully about where they're at, which is where he goes next in verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Paul is appealing for them to weigh his words, to heed his warnings, and to flee. It's like he's saying to them, surely, surely I have made this clear enough to you that you can think about what I've said and respond. And he then goes on to further explain why this is necessary. Let's read from verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, Christians will immediately read that, and rightly, the first thing that will come to your mind is the Lord's Supper, communion. But the phrase that Paul uses there, the cup of blessing that we bless, was actually a Jewish phrase that was said at the end of the Passover meal, which they celebrated to remember God saving them from Egypt. And Paul is taking that phrase and using it to refer to the celebration of the Lord's Supper that Christians celebrate when they gather together. And so like we saw last week, here is another example of how Paul is showing continuity with the Old Covenant by using this phrase. And one element of that continuity is how Paul connects the corporateness of the Passover with that of the Lord's Supper. You notice, he says, it's the cup of blessing that we bless. And it is the bread that we break. We, as Christians, celebrate this cup and this bread together. But what are we celebrating? What are are we blessing? Well, this is where our key word comes in. It is not a participation, a kunania, sorry, not, not it is not, is it not a participation, a kunania in the blood of Christ? Significantly different. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That is what it is. Do you see what he's saying here? This cup and this bread, they're not something that is disconnected from spiritual realities. They are a participation in the body and blood of Christ. 
to take the cup and the bread of the Lord's Supper, to take the cup and the bread in communion, is to display that you are united to Christ and that you live your life for His cause. Now, there's a long history and debate as to what it means to participate in Christ's body and blood. You may have heard Catholics say that uh, the, the, the wine and the bread are Jesus' actual blood and His actual body. There are some Christians who would say that Christ is somehow present in the elements, even though they would deny that, that the elements become His actual body and blood. Others uh, believe that there isn't any kind of special presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper any more than His omnipotent presence. I won't go into great detail about that right now, but I also don't think that I need to because Paul here isn't trying to teach that particular doctrine with this sentence. His point in context is that the Lord's Supper shows that we are participants in Christ. That we have attached ourselves to Him that we are in fellowship with Him and that we live for Him. And so whenever we take the Lord's Supper, we remember that we participate in who He is and what He is doing in the world. We remember His gospel, His good news, the very good news that saved us, that He gave His body and shed His blood for us that through faith in Him, we might be redeemed of our sin. And it is because of that grace and that so great a salvation that we now live to glorify Him. When you take the Lord's Supper, remember that it is Jesus that you have fellowship with. And that it is Him that you now live for. You're on Team Jesus. That's what I mean by the fellowship of the cup. But as you may have noticed, there is also bread, which brings us to point two. Let's read verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Now, as I said a moment ago, there is both a cup and bread. And Paul is not trying to separate the two. Uh, given my first two points, uh, you might think that that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> but no, I'm not. I'm simply following Paul's lead in what he says here to emphasize two different aspects of what he is saying with regard to the Lord's Supper. You see, having just talked about the cup and the bread, Paul now goes on to elaborate further what the cup and the bread actually mean. When Paul only talks about the bread in, uh, in verse 17 here, he's not suggesting that you should divorce it from the cup in order to understand this. The bread carries this particular meaning as a part of the whole celebration of the Lord's Supper. And so as he does this, he draws out an important point, which is that the one bread has been given 
Because we who are many are really one body. The one bread represents the one body. Paul is saying that the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, which Jesus himself instituted and that Paul will go on to talk about in chapter 11, was done intentionally to convey a message. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and 1 Corinthians 11 all describe Jesus as taking bread. And Paul, he shows us how that imagery is supposed to convey the oneness of Christ's church. We who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. We who are many bodies are one body in Christ because we share in the one bread. Once again here, we see the continuity that Paul is tapping into from the Passover. As I mentioned, that that corporateness that he referred to. Most clearly seen in Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 to 48, where the institution of the Passover for the people of Israel demanded an exclusivity of it among them. And that if any foreigner was to partake of it, they needed to have their males circumcised. Let me read to you verses 43 to 45. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. Verse 48, he says, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. And so Paul highlights here in 1 Corinthians that in the new covenant, a person who turns to Jesus in repentance and faith does not live out that faith in isolation. If you are one of the many, then you are united to the one body. That is a fact. And the way that your unity to that body is displayed is by being united to the local church. Now, somebody might respond to that by saying, well, yes, that's true. I'm a Christian. I'm united to the universal body of Christ, what some might call the invisible church. I don't need to be part of a, a local body. I don't need to be part of a local church, which some might call the, the visible church. I don't need to do that in order to be a Christian. That's not necessary. Well, allow me to respond with the words of the late pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul. If you say that, he says what I've just said, then it is possible that you are a Christian, but it's not very likely. Why? Because when we look at the New Testament, 
Even a cursory reading tells us that when Christ redeems an individual, he never leaves that individual in isolation. And now I'll read more of his words to you with some accompanying visuals. You cannot have one circle or sphere that is called the visible church and then outside of it, another group of people that is called the invisible church. For Augustine, the invisible, is church, the invisible church... Sorry, that's not possible. The invisible church is found within the visible church. There may be the occasional individual who is part of the invisible church, but not part of the visible church, but that would be unusual. You see, what R.C. is getting at here is that even though there might be some exceptions to the rule, like, for example, a missionary who might be the only Christian in a remote part of the world for many years, the biblical norm And the biblical pattern is that a Christian's participation in a local body, a Christian's membership in a local, visible church, is the way God intends for them to display their participation in the invisible church. The invisible church, that is, people who are truly believers, is normally found in the visible church. That is, the local church. And to resist that truth and to think that you can live your whole life as a Christian without being a member of a local church is to put your faith at great risk. R.C. goes even further by saying, it's not very likely that you're a Christian. Now, I know this might sound harsh or unloving or ungracious, But the reason that it falls on our ears that way is because we're swimming in a culture and have been for a long time that prizes individualism over corporateness and we don't pay enough attention to what the Bible says about the church. As a Christian grows, as they mature, they only grow more in their love for God's church. As God sanctifies you, you begin to see life as less and less about yourself and more about God and others. That love for Christ's church does not diminish as a Christian matures. Even if, perhaps even especially if, your church is difficult. And this, brothers and sisters, is what we remember when we come to the Lord's table. And this is precisely the reason why we say in our church what we do when it comes to taking the Lord's Supper together. The bread and the cup are outward symbols. They are outward indicators of a spiritual reality which is that the local church is a visible display of the body of Christ. This is why whenever we take the Lord's Supper at Emmaus Road, we invite members of our church and those who've been baptized as believers and who are members in good standing of a church that preaches the same gospel to join with us. 
there is in that an open invitation to those who have intentionally joined themselves to a church. There is an open invitation to those who are in fellowship with a church that holds to these same truths of the gospel and of the Bible. And of course, in that invitation, you'll notice that there is an inclusivity there and an exclusivity. In saying what we do, we acknowledge the inclusivity of the universal or the invisible church, the the universal body of Christ, no matter where on earth or which church you might normally call home. Our practice here looks forward to that wonderful truth that when Christ returns for his bride, his bride will be one people from all over the world who have turned from their sin and trust in him. It looks forward to the day when we will all see Christ face to face. We will all know fully, as Paul would write later on in this letter, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. In that moment, denominations will cease and the truth will be crystal clear as we look full into his wonderful face. There is an inclusivity with that, and yet... There is also an exclusivity. We give those guidelines regarding membership and baptism and the preaching of the gospel because we understand that the invisible church today is found in the visible church. We say that it must be a church that preaches this same gospel because if it isn't, then it is extremely likely that that church is not part of the body of Christ. And if it does not hold to the truth of the word, then it is in darkness. And as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, using the same word, kunania, what fellowship has light with darkness? You see, the Lord's Supper is a visible sign, an outward declaration of the many being united to Christ and becoming one together in Him. And if you're a Christian who has put off joining a church, then the first thing I would want to ask is, why? Do you realize that being a Christian means being one with the local body? We say these things because taking communion is not only about whether you have a personal faith in Jesus. It is absolutely about that. But it is not only about that. Taking communion is about being united to his church. It's in the church, in the local church, that you as one of the many may be joined to the one. It is there that you may publicly declare your commitment to Christ and your commitment to his church and partake in the one bread with them. The Lord's Supper, as these verses indicate, shows that when we participate in the body and the blood of Christ, we also participate in His church. 
we become part of the fellowship of the cross. And this matters because participation in idolatry is participation is participation with demons. And that brings us to point three, the fellowship of the enemy. Just in case the instructions to flee from idolatry didn't land on the Corinthians or on you, seriously enough, for you to do something about that, Paul now unveils this truth, which he's kept up his sleeve until this point. Let's read from verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You might remember in chapter 8 that Paul said these idols, they don't have any real existence, and he called them so-called gods. Well, that's still true. Such gods don't really exist. Baal, Ra, Zeus, Thor, Aphrodite, Mother Earth. None of those are real spiritual entities, at least not in the way those who believed in them thought. If you want to read a humorous uh, portrayal of this truth, go and check out Elijah's smackdown of the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. But what Paul is saying is that when people participate in this kind of activity, they are participants with demons. Paul takes an example from Israel's priests. He says... uh, when they, eat the, when they ate the meat sacrificed to God on the altar, like we see in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 6, to sh- he's showing that you cannot just innocently take part in a religious ritual and think that it means nothing. And so here in verse 19, Paul makes it clear, uh, which will be important for our passage next week, that the food offered to idols and the idol itself They aren't anything. They don't really exist. But it is the ritual, the participation that matters. Because when you do that, that is an act of idolatry. That is to put your trust to worship something other than God. And so Paul uh, is saying that the one, you know, when the Corinthians would go and they join in these idol feasts, he, he's saying you, you're not actually worshipping the emperor God. It's not like he's an actual God. No, no, he's no God at all. But he's saying when you do that, you are participating with demons. To engage in idolatry is to have fellowship with the enemy. And to participate in idolatrous activity is to effectively join the enemy's cause and start working for him. It would be like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings becoming Gandalf the Black. 
and doing Sauron's bidding. That ought to make you take this seriously. Idolatry is not neutral ground. It's not a harmless activity. It is fellowship with demons. But that raises more questions, doesn't it? What does this fellowship with demons look like? To use a somewhat current example, uh, have you all heard of the singer Lil Nas X? He uh, co-performed a song called Old Town Road with Billy Ray Cyrus. Kids, does anyone know who Lil Nas X is? Do you know, do you know the song Old Town Road? I'm going to take my soul to the old town road. I'm going to ride on a camera. He knows it. Well, uh, regardless of whether you know who he is or not, kids, this is a good reminder. Put, put your hand up if you know it, said Zai. Thank you, Zai, for that contribution. Kids, this is a good reminder. Do not look up to pop stars and famous people as your role models. Okay? Look up to the godly adults that God has placed in your life. Well, that's a long introduction to the illustration. Some of you may have heard about the, this singer, Lil Nas X's Satan Shoes that he released a couple of weeks ago. Put your hand up if you heard of it. A few people. Right. So he produced these shoes that actually included a drop of human blood in them, supposedly. And yes, that is an awful thing, and yes, we ought to stay away from things like that. But perhaps not for the reasons that most people might think. You know, I must admit, it, it confuses me a little when Christians get worked up over this sort of thing and say things like, which one of the governors tweeted out, of the US, we are in a fight for the soul of our nation. Now, I get that that could be pointing to a lot of things going on in the background, you know, like concerns about the fact that society is becoming more irreligious, that Christian morals and values are no longer mainstream in the West. You know, I'm not suggesting that this is a good thing, that Lil Nas X would release, release these shoes. But what I'm confused about is the assumption that something like this is somehow or suddenly a significantly worse thing than the fact that the majority of people already live their lives in participation with demons. Even if they would never pull off a stunt like this. Even if they wouldn't even buy the shoes. One of the comments in that tweet feed was something like, uh, so kids are already watching Lucifer and they're already, you know, watching these other things on YouTube and you're getting worked up over this. That's a, an accurate observation. You know, sure, this, this is a very overt, very obvious way for Lil Nas X to indicate that he hates God. But do we realize that someone can look like a so-called good person and be in fellowship with demons. As a matter of fact, 
That is exactly the state that every person who has not turned to Christ is in. They might not realize that. They might not even intentionally be wanting to advance Satan's cause. But as Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, if you are not with him, you are against him. This is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians in this passage. I mean, think about it. Did, did everybody who offered idols, uh, offered food to idols in Corinth, did they all know that they were in fellowship with demons? No, of course not. Most of them wouldn't have even known about God or Jesus. And yet Paul is showing, his point is that the unregenerate heart, the heart that has not yet turned to Christ, is on the enemy's team. As Roz read earlier from Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. To engage in idolatry is to advance Satan's cause. It is to be on Satan's team. This is why Paul tells the Corinthians to flee idolatry. He doesn't want them, he doesn't want us to be in fellowship with demons. And if you have not yet turned from your sin, realize the desperate state of your soul. If you have not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, then you are following the prince of the power of the air. And I urge you today, don't stay on that team. Turn to Him. Paul here is peeling back the layer of physical reality that we live in, and he is showing us the very real spiritual reality that is going on behind all of that and showing us what is truly happening whenever our hearts engage in idolatry. Now, that's a scary thought. And it ought to be. That's why Paul reminds us that Christians can not do it. And that brings us to our final point. The fellowship of the Lord. Let's read verses 21 and 22. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Paul is saying that to engage in idolatry and to claim to be a Christian and take the Lord's Supper is to live in contradiction with yourself. It would be like telling someone you love them and then gossiping behind their back. It would be like being the goalkeeper of a soccer team 
in a grand final and then intentionally letting the winning goal through. You cannot eat and drink at both tables. If you do, you are like a double agent and your allegiance is really with the enemy. Remember the background of this whole issue and Paul's emphasis on food and drink that is offered to idols. I think this gives a whole new meaning for the phrase table fellowship. Paul is saying it's not possible. This eating and drinking is indicative of where your heart is and where your allegiance is and who you have fellowship with. He's saying you need to remember if you claim allegiance to the Lord, then you are His and His alone. And as He's already given, if you do not flee from sexual immor- from idolatry, then you are at risk of destruction. It is so serious that Paul once again gives us another warning at the end here. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? And this calls to mind the many times in the Old Testament that explicitly talks about God's jealousy. And no, just like Oprah thought, this isn't one of God's character flaws, His jealousy. Yes, there is sinful jealousy, No, this is not what Paul is talking about. It's not what the Bible talks about. It's not like God is jealous of your beautiful hair or your hunting skills or your new car. This is talking about God's righteous jealousy that burns when His people choose to worship a false God instead of Him. As a matter of fact, when God gives the second commandment to not make idols and worship them, this is exactly what we see. In Exodus chapter 20, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. To have table fellowship with false gods and idols of your own making is to provoke his jealousy and invite his punishment. Do you really want to do that? Are you stronger? Then he? Do you think you'll be able to take God on on the day of judgment? Fellowship with the Lord is fellowship with him alone. Fellowship with Jesus doesn't come with an asterisk, it's not a partial commitment. But I hear you asking, So does that mean that whenever I start to worship or love or treasure things above God in my own heart, does that mean I'm in fellowship with demons? Well, according to this passage, yes. But with a very significant qualification. There is one crucial difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. There is an extremely important separation between one who trusts in Christ and one who doesn't. 
Which is why Paul says you cannot be in fellowship with both Christ and demons. You see, even though a Christian might stumble, even though in our temptation and succumbing to idolatry, we might, we might shoot some own goals, the fundamental, the baseline reality of our lives is that as followers of Christ, we are on Christ's team. <coughs> Let me read again the rest of that passage in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Praise God. This is the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. We've been made alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. We've been saved through faith. We're now a new creation. And it's not because of our works, but because of his gracious gift. That's why Paul made it so clear earlier on in this passage that taking the Lord's Supper represents our fellowship with him. And by Paul making it clear that idolatry is being in fellowship with demons, he is driving home the point. He is seeking to penetrate our hearts and our minds with the searing question, why would you do it? Why would you even want to entertain the thought of joining Satan's cause? And we remember here, That as Christians, by God's grace, we must continue to destroy even the tiniest idols. Even that stray thought or that little longing that seeks to find fulfillment in worldly things is provoking God's jealousy. Destroy those idols before they destroy you. You can't, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. You cannot serve two masters. And yet the struggle is real, isn't it? That's the point of Romans 7 and Paul talking about our struggle as Christians with our sin that our hearts do what we don't want them to do and that they don't do the things that we do want them to do. And this is why we who are the many join in the one bread. We fight sin and idolatry with everything that is within us. We put on the armor of God and we wage war against the enemy and against our sin. And we fight it together as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
You see, being united to Christ's church, becoming a member of a local church, is about way more than just being able to say that you're part of this exclusive club. No, it's about recognizing that you are part of the fellowship of the cross. It's about recognizing that by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus, you have been saved by Him and united to Him through His body and blood. And that is what you remember every time you come to the Lord's Supper. And it's about recognizing that through that body and blood, you have been united to His body, to His people, to His church. And that is what you remember every time you come to the Lord's Supper. How do you fight sin and idolatry? How do you resist being in fellowship with demons? You remain in fellowship with Christ and His church. In His church, we encourage one another. We weep with one another. We apply the balm of God's Word to the wounds that we experience in our fight against the enemy and sin. We love one another. We warn one another. We exhort one another. This is what it means to be part of Christ's church. The Fellowship of the Cross is a group of brothers and sisters who band together and who face adversity with one another and who have one another's backs and who are willing to give their lives for one another and who join in the cause of the gospel for the glory of God. When you come to the table, remember Christ. Remember that you are in fellowship with Him. And remember that you are in fellowship with His body. Are you fighting for the fellowship of the cross? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, how great, how awesome, how wonderful your grace is. Lord, you have saved us from our sin through Jesus' life and death on the cross. Lord, you have given us Jesus so that we might turn from our sin to forsake everything else 
to turn away from the treasures and the idols of this world and trust in you. Lord, for any of us who have not yet entered into that fellowship, may you by your grace save. For those of us who are and who continue to battle and struggle with the temptations of the enemy and our own sin, Lord, by your grace, may you sustain us and sanctify us, we pray. We thank you for Jesus, through whom real life and salvation is possible. And it's in his name we ask these things. Amen.